as you know, I'm Topher and Ford. There's Brandon Givens. Uh, oh, yeah. Looking nice and shiny. And yeah, we're going to talk about some stuff. Brandon, uh, how are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, we got spring break started, and you know, that's nice. And spent some time practicing the ukulele today. And, oh. Well, are you yeah, uh, so. are you good at it yet? Uh, no, I think I'm 15 days into a 30 day challenge. I'll put it that way. So yeah. uh, you have to learn uh, how to play tiptoe through the tulips, and oh. the uh, that song from the jerk. I can't remember the name of it, and whatever that song is that they always that people like to play at weddings. Damn. Here comes the bride? No. Uh, there's like a... I don't know. I don't know. It's not important. <laughs> um, well, you know, we are here to talk about stuff happening around the world. So um, let's get into it. Um, we were going to start off talking a little bit about what's been going on in Yemen because it is pretty bad and... You know, it's get it's one of those things that's getting overshadowed by what's happening in Ukraine. So, uh, Brandon, can you give us like a you know, I guess like a, a general report of what's going on there? Uh, it's largely it's a political religious conflict. Uh, it's uh, Shia versus Sunni, and uh, the Shia are against their Sunni overlords and Saudi Arabia supports the Sunni overlords and Iran supports the Houthi or rebels. That's the short version. Um, right. Um, and I'll be honest, I haven't known a whole lot about what's gone on in Yemen other than that there's a really bad humanitarian crisis there. And I was looking at the overview uh, this morning, and there are a lot of people, a lot of nations involved in this small country um, that have basically turned it into a humanitarian nightmare, it seems like. Um, and I was looking at some news about it. Um, one of the things is that, you know, when Joe Biden was elected, he said he intended to stop supporting Saudi Arabia there and to seek, you know, as much as he can influence a, you know, a change, a relief for the people there. But it doesn't seem like that's what is going on. Uh, we have this story from The Intercept. Um, as U.S. focuses on Ukraine, Yemen starves. Biden vowed to stop supporting the Saudi-led war. A year later, Yemen's humanitarian crisis is worse by many accounts than when Trump was president. And it, it, I guess basically, you know, the Yemeni people are still cut off on all sides from the rest of the world and there are, are a lot of bombings that are hitting you know not just 
Houthi held places, but as in a lot of wars, uh, schools, hospitals, um, and in the in the meantime, the people cannot get any relief. No humanitarian aid can get through, and I don't know. Do we? Does it look like an end is in sight for these people? No. <laughs> this is the short answer. I mean, it's another proxy war. It's um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's a way for them to fight indirectly. Um, so, you know, they'll pay other people to fight, much like uh, Syria was a proxy war. And what I su- suggest Ukraine is becoming is, well, I mean, we call it a proxy war, but it's a, it's a real war. It just happens to be a- that... Other powers are, instead of fighting directly, are fighting it out via that avenue. Right. Um, And we're going to come back to that in a bit and discuss um, that, the West and the West's role in how that situation has played out. I mean, it's always a a justification of attack on civilians. You know, we have all these like rules of war and rules of engagement. But in modern warfare, I mean, since World War One, like civilians face more casualties than soldiers. You know, it's in a sense ironic. Like, oh, you know, if I go off to war, you, know, you might be safer going off to war than staying at home, depending on where you're at. Um, right. If you're part of an army, you might, you know, get fed more often. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine um, at a certain point, you get hungry enough, you're willing to risk you know, getting shot or blown up. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, at the very bottom is like food and above that is safety. If you're starving, you don't, you, you can't even think about safety. So, you know, and that's kind of part of the method is, you know, starve people out and then eventually they'll put themselves in danger trying to get food and, it's easier to either kill or corral them or offer them food, um, depending on your situation, and then you can become the savior. So, you know, the whole uh, Stockholm Syndrome. So you have these people in uh, Mariupol that are getting funneled into Russia now. And it says, oh, well, they're hostages. Like, uh, maybe not so much hostages, but once they go there, after they're there six months, assuming the Russians do feed them and take care of them, they'll start to side with the Russians because, well, these are the people that saved me from the situation. They'll forget that who are the ones that put them in it. But, yeah, of course, they'll, they'll be surrounded by the Russian propaganda, too. And it was, oh, we were really just trying to save you this whole time, and it was the uh, Ukrainians that started this war, but look how we're feeding you, and you're with people that speak um, Russian. And that area is, has a high, high number of um, Russian native speakers. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's all part of the grand propaganda war. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on um, to Ethiopia and the the war going on there with the Tigray or the Tigray region. Um, we have this story from AP News, World Health Organization chief 
World's worst health crisis is in Ethiopia. WHO Director General Tedros, uh, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, I really should have read that out loud before this, but uh, said the situation in Tigray from where he hails was, quote, catastrophic, saying the region had been, quote, sealed off from the outside world for about 500 days. No food aid has been delivered since the middle of December, Tedros told a press briefing, adding that about three quarters of health facilities assessed by WHO in the region had been destroyed. He said there was no treatment for about 40,000 people with HIV in the region. Um, this is, yeah, uh, it, it's rough all over. Uh, you know, he mentioned uh, the people with AIDS who can't get health care. Uh, also, COVID, which we don't, we haven't really discussed much, uh, but COVID is still raging and yeah. it is taking a massive toll on the people uh caught up in this war in Ethiopia just like I'm sure it's causing huge trouble in Yemen uh, as well I can't imagine and I don't know this for sure but I can't imagine that they have a, a ready supply of vaccines and medical care so I don't know what do you think this looks like in Ethiopia going forward uh it's going to continue to be bad and i have heard that in certain regions it has gotten more stable but there there's still a lot of hot spots and again in, in war it's often the civilians that are going to be harmed the most and i don't really expect it to get much better until the war itself is solved with i would hope a political solution instead of you know, a war solution. As we all know, war is politics by other means. Right. Um, but, I mean, they've even got the issue with, um, was it some people being burned alive? And, oh, those Turkish drones are there. Those famous Turkish drones. <laughs> the, the government there is using them. And so... Yeah, and here's I mean, the story that you were talking about. In Ethiopia, a video of civilians burned alive sparks anger. Uh, this is from the ABC News. Uh, Ethiopian authorities say they will prosecute individuals seen in a gruesome video in which armed men appear to burn at least three people alive. So, I mean, it's, you know, a thing, I guess when war gets going, it it doesn't bring out the best in people, right? It, bring, it typically uh, emphasizes the worst in people. And it's... I mean, I I don't have anything substantial to add to that. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I hope we're making a point that these things are worldwide and have been around a while. And we keep talking about how we want to end war and can't we all just get along and have peace and, you know, this whole mythology of, you know, not targeting civilians and, and the world cares and mm, some people do and we kind of do, but we do care about people from certain areas more than others. And it's unfair. And a thing that's also not right about it is that's becoming a propaganda tool that, you know, like the people that support Russia are using 
and say, oh, look, nobody is paying attention to Ethiopia. Nobody is paying attention to Yemen. And, and like, oh, you know what they, you know, the governments, you know, we got COVID and people are, was it inflation and gas prices, but we're going to, we're going to give money to these Ukrainians. And, you know, why didn't we do that the whole time? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe we, maybe we should have, but world policing is, it's difficult. And you had that whole issue of red lines. And I mean, I, I can admit too that sometimes it can get quite complicated, like Syria. At what point should the U.S. have intervened more directly or should they, or did they do the right thing by not? Because al-Assad was attacking civilians. It was pretty clear. And we, you know, we supported the Kurds and some of the rebel groups, but we probably could have done a whole lot more. We could have made attacking civilians less beneficial for him. Like, but I don't know that it would have worked. And uh, yeah, and that's the thing. Ukraine, yeah, like there, Russia's paying for their invasion through these sanctions, and the West is sending lots of weapons to Ukraine. But that just seems to be causing the Russians to attack more, or attack civilians more, and it's incredibly um, frustrating. And yeah. And of course, you know, right now we're talking about the Middle East and what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is affecting the Middle East. Uh, obviously, like we, we're in a global civilization now. Everyone's connected to everyone. Um, we have this, uh, this look at... Um, you know, African uh, dependence on wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, we can see some places are really, you know, hit really hard by... Egypt's going to have problems. I'm predicting another sort of Arab Spring or something um, in North Africa. And... In Sub-Saharan Africa, there there are going to be problems. Uh, I don't know how how that'll play out in more coups or more support for um, any sort of counter-establishment group, whether they be Islamicist or you know just anything, just anti-establishment. Right. But As people with, get hungry and afraid, they're going to rise up. They're going to become. Uh, and this is unrestful is not a word yeah well i mean this is time too like in the u.s it's you can't admit as a politician you make a mistake or made a mistake Uh, that's seen as weakness like people seem to like their politicians to just refuse to admit there's a problem and they might suggest a solution that seemed good but then if it doesn't work out, we can't fix it. And the example I would use is the corn-based ethanol. And this was supposed to be, oh, it'll reduce our dependence on oil. But it created these other problems like, okay, well, now we're farming more land. And uh, that land that's growing corn that's used for ethanol perhaps should be used to grow wheat instead. 
but stopping the regulations on how much ethanol we need to put in the gasoline was nigh impossible. Would no one would want to admit it was a mistake. And two, now you've got all those corporations, the farming corporations that are getting subsidies to ensure that the corn is like profitable for them or, right. and sugar too, because I think sugar is used. And, you know, we, we can't get rid of that. It's that whole um, legalized corruption, but we call it a subsidy. And it ends up getting, it says, oh, well, this is why, you know, the government's all corrupt. You can't have any socialism. And it's like, well, I can't have any socialism because subsidized corn makes a problem. Okay, well, let's just not have any government at all. They're like, oh, you got it. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? That's the ultimate goal for quite a few people. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, there, there's, you know, it's not all or nothing, you know. It's like uh, some police are corrupt, therefore we get rid of the police. Uh, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, try to try to fix things but we we do need to be that is a it's going to be a security issue and not i mean not just like people are going to be hurting from this but it is a serious security issue if places around the world that are supplying you know if you want to just think with your pocketbook that we get a lot of natural resources and raw materials from africa and uh, the Middle East and you know, these food insecure regions. And if they become politically insecure, then that's going to destabilize our economy as well. So you could watch your 401k go. <laughs> and so if that's the motivation, then I guess that's the motivation. But it's like, well, that's you know, often... usually the, you know, a really big motivation here in the United States. And I mean, to be fair, in all of the like, more developed food secure nations the you know the thought of another nation being insecure in their food they're like oh that's that's bad i don't like that but then as soon as they're like oh my retirement funds getting hurt then they're like <laughs> we must take action you know <laughs> yeah. so right. it's uh Argentina and Brazil might do well off this, maybe Ecuador, Chile. I mean, these like South American um, agricultural regions that are capable of growing lots of wheat and soybeans and, you know, they might be able to fill the void, you know, rapidly change, kind of move over from sugar or whatever to, to wheat. So we might see that, uh, but better get on it. You know, there's also, I'm not sure exactly the planting seasons, but you got planting season issues. Right. And, uh, but I think it's three more weeks, and that's when planting season is supposed to start in Ukraine and much of Russia. So, you know, that the, the shortfall is going to be coming. Yeah, and speaking of uh, South America coming in and you know, alleviating some stress. We've got this. It looks like uh, Biden and their administration are making at least some small diplomatic attempts to, you know, r reach out to Maduro and his administration. And we don't know. It seems like it's very tentative right now. Uh, but, you know, we haven't been in touch with Venezuela. We've kind of cut off communications with them since 2019. Uh, but now it looks like Biden is sending some 
feelers there to discuss. One of the things that they discussed was energy security, which, you know, that's got to be oil, right? So, um, yeah. uh, well, they, they've gone to the dollar kind of unofficially. Uh, so the, the Maduro administration has lightened up a bit. They've kind of, they've gone to the dollar. They brought in more private firms to kind of work with the oil. Um, so they're, uh, I think they're realizing that they're incompetent, that their political apparatus is incompetent and they're slowly giving up control. Um, but yeah, I guess that provides, and then with the, the, the need for more refined gasoline supplies or a way to get more oil to refine it, then yeah, you got, you got an opening there. Right. Which also maybe speaks a little bit to how serious the Biden administration is to, you know, get away from Russia and Russian oil as much as possible, you know, that they're willing to open this back up. Yeah. Well, it's like it's always um, the the devil you know or something like you, you instead of having one devil when you, we're going to have many devils. So we've got okay. Well, we uh, then we got Maduro. So let's you know all right, we'll to fund his regime and um, Turkmenistan. They're sitting on so much natural gas, but they can't get it out so well because they're landlocked. Well, they have that Caspian Sea, and um, if they could connect a pipeline across the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan and then Georgia through Turkey, it could get into to Europe. Um, there's already in that general region a pipeline, um, but that could be a game changer as far as natural gas supplies goes because I think they have, it's a small nation with like the fourth largest reserves in the world, but it's a dictator too with a cult of personality. And you've got, uh, what was it? Oh, I'm stuttering now. Um, well, Azerbaijan itself has kind of a strong man leader. And they're sitting on all that oil. Uh, but it also questions if the, the West did start funding them. Oh, yeah, in Kazakhstan, you know, lots of oil and natural gas here, but they're kind of, they're landlocked and Getting it, it, getting it out through the Caspian Sea and Azerbaijan is more expensive than the other routes, unless maybe the West can come in and say, hey, we'll go ahead and fund this for you or subsidize it. But, you know, of course, you know, that, that's if we're trying to get away from natural gas, then that creates an issue, too. I'm for, like, throwing everything at it. Like as far as getting away from the super dictators, like, okay, yeah, 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 fine. When instead of having one devil, we're going to have a bunch of devils. But that way, when one devil's too devilish, we're only paying the other. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that makes a sort of sense. Um, of course, you know, given America's history, they're, they tend to want to avoid the leftist devils more than anything. Um, that seems to be the quickest way to ensure that the U.S. does not want to work with you is to be even vaguely liberal. 
as a leader. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I've got some good news for you. None of these guys are. <laughs> right. Well, got some good news. Uh, yeah, it's the the prevailing I mean, our, winds these I mean, days. Our, our, part of our political issue would be the environmental issue. It's like we're trying, like we have this environmental crisis, and it is real, and we do need to be getting away. And so in some ways we have an opportunity to say, hey, let's, you know, push these other energies. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, natural gas is a bit cleaner than some of these other fuels, and I would like the wars to end. I would like to not fund these guys. So maybe we could do both. Why can't we do both? Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, again, when you, like, no, it has to be, it has to be all environmental or no, it has to be, we can't do any of that environmental stuff. It's just propaganda. It's like, ah, I can't, why can't we do both? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing with, you know, the environmental issue and global warming and all of that is that I think, and you know, according to everything that I keep reading, uh, global warming is a lot worse than scientists have been letting on. And a big part of that is because every time they come out with the most realistic numbers, uh, they get shouted down as alarmist and, you know, doomsday you know, accused of being a, a chicken little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, so scientists have, while scientists are still, you know, trying to sound the alarm about global warming, they've also been sort of uh, incentivized to give everyone the best case scenario numbers and present that those as like the worst case scenario numbers. And that's why every time uh, we keep seeing headlines saying, you know, temperatures are rising at rates faster than what scientists predicted. It's like they I think and I could be wrong because I'm not a scientist. But from my understanding, most scientists did predict those higher numbers. They just can't <laughs> say them in public without getting shouted down because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to deal with it. It's. um terror management theory you know people have to people are instinctively averse to considering their own mortality and impending doom and it's that but on a global scale for humanity and nobody wants to listen to it but it's you know well i think it's also it's hard for someone to understand something when their paycheck depends on them not understanding it yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely under, another factor. It's like under understanding that this that this climate change is real and it's serious, and we need to adapt our economy to it, and that's going to that's going to take resources and probably reductions in profit. Ooh, I don't like to understand that. No, <laughs> I don't like thinking about it. But it's uh, every time I. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to be in a really good optimistic mood because I'll be chugging along feeling pretty happy. And, and then I remember the phrase methane cascade and I go, Oh, 
I forgot about that. Uh, I'm not going to explain <laughs> Methane Cascade to you if you don't know what it is. Um, either look it up if you're really curious, but if you don't want to ruin your week, maybe don't look it up. So, um, all right, well, let's... Uh, well, don't, don't you have something, uh, I thought you were talking with, um, before the call about Iran or, or Iraq. What's going on in Iraq? Soldiers or something? Yeah, I was trying to make I was trying to make a segue. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of uh, conflict, because and we're going to get to Ukraine obviously here in a minute, but we just like Brandon said, uh, hit on the fact that the Ukraine war is not the only thing that's going on right now. Um, we also have Iraq and uh, this story from Military Times, U.S. troops will likely be in Iraq for years to come, Central Command boss says. So, you know, we pulled out of Afghanistan, um, which I think generally is a good thing, but we, we're still involved, the U.S. is still involved in, you know, other conflicts going on, and it looks like we're going to be in Iraq indefinitely. Well, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, that didn't seem to go very well. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Afghanistan. Was there a good answer there? You know, it's one of those things. Well, no, there wasn't. Uh, but at the same time, no one was willing to deal with the corruption. That I mean, it, it was... Largely our own forces. Was it SIGAR? I had that kind of the fun acronym. For the very beginning, we're like, uh, we're wasting a lot of money on stuff. You know, like this is just this is just a cash cow for a lot of these companies that right. are contracting. And that's the good old American way. You throw cash at it. You know, like yeah. I've been spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Why isn't this fixed yet? You know, that's the <laughs> oh, so that, uh, Parks and Rec, those guys. And like, I was trying to start a business. I was told you got to spend money to make money. And we spent a whole lot of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like maybe there's more to it than that. Um, so I don't know, Brandon, can you give us a little, you know, rundown of what Iraq looks like right now? Ah, well, uh, it's kind of this sort of federalism. In a sense, you've got the Kurds in the north, uh, the Saudi in the middle, and the Shia in the south. And uh, the oil is largely in the south and uh, a substantial amount um, throughout the rest of the country. Thus, well. American presence. <laughs> yeah, it's a large part. That's economic stability. And they still have an insurgency. Uh, it's much calmer than it has been in a while. And, the, you know, the U.S. military, uh, I mean, I imagine they have a number of, of operations. Uh, largely, I think just the, the presence itself is why they're there. It's like, well, we have troops here. And if we, you know, like if we leave, then people will act up again, you know. Uh, and the, the Shia, from my understanding, control the majority like control the parliament and it's 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 kind of corrupt and rooting out the corruption is rather difficult 
but things might be slowly getting better. I mean, ISIS is no longer the threat that they were. I mean, that's, that's an improvement. Um, of course, the U.S. presence is there, too, for like, you know, we, how we attacked or, you know, assassinated with a missile that right. the body in general, you know, its intelligence gathering is still important. And, you know, that is a good reason to keep people around. Uh, oddly enough, or sadly enough, the Iraq is kind of an Iranian friend. So their government has to balance because they're Shia, they're, well, the, you know, the South and the majority population are Shia. So they, they have this sympathy to Iran and it's also an overland route for Iran to supply their buddies in Syria because Iran and the, and the Syrian regime are allied. Yeah. So, and also that's a way to help support Hezbollah, you know, as well. So Iraq, in some sense, has been a giant failure, but it's also evidence that we're not the evil empire because we're letting Iran ship weapons across Iraq because Iraq is a sovereign nation. <laughs> or, we're, you know, or I, I don't know that they're openly shipping weapons across, but they're, they're corrupt enough are at least not wanting to aggravate Iran enough to, for the Iraqi government to not really stop it, to not make too too heavy an effort to stop it. Yeah. Of course, if they do, they might face an insurrection. You know, like what? How dare you? You know, like uh, the people themselves might like, no, we really do want to support Iran, and how dare you not, not let us, you know, get away with sneaky weapons across the border. Yeah, it's, I feel like a 15-year-old, but I'm like, why does everyone have to be fighting all the time? Um, <laughs> it's A lot of people wonder that. Well, where, where else? People are still kids. I don't know why a lot of people there they're they're still kids. I mean you you you're an adult now, but you've met other adults. They're they're still kids. And yeah. They, they, when they don't get their way, they get upset and they still have these sort of concrete all or nothing ways of thinking and they tribalize and you know, like say, Oh, that other those other people that are different, they're they're actually kind of bad too and yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, we're all still children. Religion, uh, was it, um, the great uniter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, like, even without even without religion, we will tribalize. Right. Um, like re religion, arguably, religion has made a comeback because the ideologies of capitalism, fascism, and communism fail. You know, like Iraq, the Bathist, Syria, the Bathist. Like, we're going to have like a secularish state. You know, I mean, yeah, we'll be Muslim, but we're secular. So we'll, we'll make sure, you, you know, you, you can be Christian, that's fine, but we're going to be socialists, we're going to be buddies with the communists, and it didn't bring about the, the great United Arab state or prosperity, and out of that failure, you get this sort of religious extremism came up. And right. Turkey, you've got like, oh, well, you know, we, 
we're not as rich as we thought we would be being buddies with uh, with Europe and there's this sort of religious strain that's you know that's kind of behind Erdogan which is you know if we if we just go back to God if we just you know we've gotten away from Allah and the good traditions and if we just go back to God and we have faith and we put God back into the center of our lives then God's going to bless us again and we're going to be great like we once were sound familiar <laughs> you know like you you hear this and arguably that's something kind of in the we see in, in the U.S. as well, or perhaps other places in the West, where our political ideologies have not delivered this great promise of prosperity. And so there's like, ah, oh, well, let's go back to God and let's, you know, go, go back to bringing God into the household. And right. that's going to make things better. Um, yeah, uh, so. Yeah. And speaking of that, um, and and this, you know, it's a, a, a good segue back to Ukraine because uh, Putin recently gave a speech and uh, started to invoke Jesus. Uh, Putin has famously been quiet about his own religious faith, um, but I guess he's starting to open up now. Uh, Putin quotes Jesus to justify invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, he's starting to bring out the God talk as well. Uh, I. It took him a while, I guess, uh, but um, what he was in league. He's he's been in league with the Orthodox Church. Uh, yeah, like when communism collapsed in, in the Soviet Union, the Orthodox Church got a huge boost. And at first, United Russia was kind of weary, but then they jumped on the bandwagon. Right. And yeah, like I think we were talking about last uh, last week the the head of the the church there was like oh yes this war is because the ukraine is woke and has gay pride parades <laughs> and, right. you know and, and they you know they have the the laws there that appeal uh, like they kind of they'll be presented as sensible enough like um the they had like the anti-homosexual law in russia it was basically saying you cannot teach someone under 18 about homosexuality and the idea is, oh, the homosexuals are recruiting, and it's the parents' job. And, I mean, you can present that in a way that, okay, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, I shouldn't be talking to someone else's kid about sexuality. You know, I mean, that's actually kind of creepy. Like, why would I be doing that? You know, like someone under 18, why would I be, you know, talking to them? But that's not what that was about. Right. You know, it was a very thin veil, but it appeals to a segment of society that is, you know, fearful of things which they do not understand or, you know, oh, well, you know, the, you know, the communists were all about being more accepting and stuff. And, you know, we got away from the church and that's why, that's why things got so bad. So let's go back to the church, back to, and that's going to, that's going to protect us and be better. And the church right. tells us that this homosexuality is this Western aberration. And, and so we can't, you know, we gotta, we gotta suppress that. And, right. Which is, you yeah. know, part of why it's been easy for uh, the radical right here in the United States to latch on to Putin and Russia. And, you know, we've seen a lot of support for Putin from Republicans. Uh, and I think that's part of it. What he said, this is from this Yahoo news article. We were looking at, um, at this, at this rally, uh, 
Putin said he ordered the invasion, quote, to get people out of their misery, out of this genocide, that is the main reason, the motive and purpose of the military operation that we began in Donbass and Ukraine. And, um, and then he said, and this is where the words from the scriptures comes to my mind. There is no greater love than if someone gives his soul for his friends. Uh, Putin continued paraphrasing John fifteen thirteen, And uh, they have an interesting bit here about the translation, uh, you know, from Russian uh, to where if was he meant, what did he mean soul when he said gives his soul or did he mean life? as in give, someone gives his life for his friends. And, of course, he's using this quote to, you know, sort of glorify dying in battle when, you know, in the Bible it was, the, the quote is Jesus talking about sacrificing himself. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a bad faith um reference you know oh yeah but i mean you can twist words any way you want especially like this quote mining you have a quote right out of context yeah i mean they're using the same lines that the u.s did i mean they learned from the best um the iraq war oh well we're stopping genocide and there are weapons of mass destruction and there's persecution and also we're god's people and god wants us to (laughs) Go, right. go kill some heathens. Yeah, um, yeah. Saddam Hussein did commit crimes against his people, and you know the, the Kurds were aghast. I mean, many many years, especially many years before. Like, I mean, he was a tyrant, um, but I don't know if our response was appropriate for what right. was happening. And his tyranny and, was probably just more uh, from the you know U.S. government perspective. Uh, just you know like a convenient justification because lots of dictators are doing lots of terrible things but we don't we don't generally get involved unless you know it threatens our stability well the it's also like how we have acted in the past with wars makes me not optimistic about um, russians standing up like I, I do believe the it, maybe not the majority, but at least forty percent of Russians are very much in support of the war. Right. That seems and, to be what I'm reading is that uh, a large portion of the population, and maybe it's more than half, uh, yeah. is supporting the war. I mean, you just think to our our own news stations and what we saw it was like, oh well, you know, he's a tyrant, he's awful, he kills his own people. And we're trying to, to make a better government there. And it was like, oh, well, look at all these civilians that are starving. Well, you know, that stuff just happens in war. We're, you know, obviously we're not doing it intentionally. And I mean, I, I don't think the U.S. necessarily was intentionally bombing hospitals and such. But even if we were, you know, I mean, I, I think there were some incidents in Afghanistan where U.S. soldiers did um, bomb like uh like a doctors without borders hospital or something and you know i kind of got glossed over but nonetheless i i just i don't think that 
most Americans would really believe their government had done such a thing or was doing it regularly. And I just think that's the same for the Russians. Like they're going to believe like, oh, no, no, yeah, we're, you know, the, the, they're, we're, they're not actually bombing hospitals. They're not, they're not, they didn't bomb. Right. Especially you know, considering it was an accident, you know, Putin's control over the media, you know, so I my guess is that that phenomenon is even uh, more prevalent there or is stronger there than it is here. Because I think at this point in time, like probably back, you know, during when uh, George W. Bush launched his invasion and uh, then again, especially under Obama, people were a little naive about the United States committing more crimes. Uh, but I, I would think that now with a lot of, you know, the, the news that's come out of there because the United States doesn't have as much direct control. They have a lot of influence over the media, but they don't have direct control over it. So I think that a lot of people are pretty savvy now to, you know, the fact that the the U S government has been, uh, complicit in war crimes. (laughs) Uh, we've got we've got a free press and many many years of seeing it. They don't exactly have a free press, and this is their first kind. Con- well, I mean, they were involved in in Syria, um, but that seemed to have worked out for them. And they've got the cover of oh well, if anything did oh well, that was that was Assad. <laughs> we we didn't we didn't do that was it was Assad. Um, are the the kid, like um, what I'm seeing from the propaganda aimed at the children is to say like um, Ukraine uh, was, they're bullying, they were bullying the Donbass region and, you know, oppressing Russians. And there's, there's no genocide or oppression. Um, the closest you can get to any of that is, uh, you know, you have this kind of, you have this trench line there and they would put pot shots at each other. And sometimes civilian buildings got hit, and but that was there were both complicit in that, but there wasn't this sort of like organized effort. And part of the the Minsk Accords was to allow like Donbas to they were supposed to have supervised elections to kind of decide their government and. If that government wanted to go to Russia, then Ukraine was supposed to be kind of okay with it. But they never, the, uh, Russia would never allow the election to happen with observers. So, I mean, it, it was, it's all just, you know, all their stuff is based on lies or half-truths. Right. And then moving on to this story about uh, China, Chinese students uh, at Cornell. This is from Yahoo News. You can see Cornell students from China jeer walk out on Uyghur student who asked lawmaker about Uyghur genocide. A group of international Chinese students from Cornell University staged a walkout and allegedly booed a Uyghur student during a public service career talk last week. Uh, this yeah, so 
this is more of uh, the Uyghur genocide that's happening and China's refusal to acknowledge it. Um, well, you get this whole like um, that any question about the Chinese government doing anything wrong or in history doing anything wrong is like an attack against all Chinese people. And oh, that doesn't sound familiar. Well, yeah, I was like, you see that as a brilliant way to control the narrative. It's one of the most masterful propaganda elements because you can't have a discussion. You can't talk about how did we get here in history because you might, you know, you're saying because your great grandpa did something, I'm automatically saying you did something wrong. And that's not what's being said. But right. That's or just it might lead to talk of reparations, you know, things or like doing, that. Yeah, doing something. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah. I didn't do anything. Therefore, why should we pay for that? Or, right. It's like yeah, that old chestnut that I heard a lot growing up. I'm sure you did, too, back in Arkansas. Like, well, I didn't know. I don't own any slaves, so I don't know why it's got to be my problem. <laughs> so, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, oh, the, the, the university, though, they were kind of tone deaf. Uh, there's something like, oh, well, you know, the, we understand Asians sometimes get picked on or, you know, can, there's anti-Asian discrimination and we, we don't want that to, to happen. And the, the woman was like, Hold it! I'm Asian. <laughs> right. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm Asian. It, I'm so it sounds like they were using a legitimate issue, which is anti-Asian hate here in the United States, to sidestep this issue and just kind of avoid talking about it because it's easier if they just don't discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. I think here's the. The quote at the same time, oh yeah, like the well, the students, you know, walking us at the same time, they remind us how harmful it is when conversation devolves into derogatory anti Asian expression. But I mean, that that didn't happen, right? <laughs> that was just and the whole thing, like, I, I anti Asian, I'm Asian, like, I, you know, I want to know what happened to my brother, right? He disappeared, and hey, you're committing genocide against my people, that's racist. It's like, right. <laughs> racist against who? I'm the same race as you. Yeah. Not that, yeah. I mean, you know, we say race and uh, race doesn't exist in this term, but it's like, you know. Uh, uh, it's a social construct. Right. Um, you know, a very but, strong social construct. Yeah. yeah it's just, uh, well, I mean, uh, money. Oh, you know, is that paper money doesn't have value? Well, it sure does when I go to the store. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so in social humans, we live by these social constructs. Uh, it, it, it makes it very sticky or very right. difficult, you know, a difficult thing to deal with and talk about. And then deconstruct of like, well, you do know that's just paper. And it's like, well, you do know race is a figment of your imagination. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? Right. I tried to um, tell the people at the grocery store that this money is imaginary and they still wouldn't let me leave. They're like, that basket know. full of groceries is not imaginary and I'm going to need uh, some money for it. 
Or if I went to the bank and I tried to get the uh, to take the money out because it was imaginary. So, <laughs> oh, oh, now you can go to jail over taking imaginary pieces of paper with imaginary value. <laughs> right. You don't pay your imaginary value paper and taxes. You can get in trouble. <laughs> right. Which oddly enough is kind of what creates the value because you know that there is kind of a thing. If we didn't have to pay taxes in dollars. I mean, in many ways, that's where the dollar gets its value because you are kind of obligated to pay in dollars. So if the government did tomorrow say, okay, we're not taking dollars for payment anymore, I was like, uh, we've, you know, we've what, made... by what, faith, <laughs> what faith does the dollar have any value? Yeah. The dollar made, is no longer We made Elon debt. Musk the head of the IRS and we're now only accepting Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, how do you get that? Value, yeah. You got to figure yeah. it out on your own. Higher TurboTax. They'll, they'll figure it out for you. Uh, yeah, I got yeah, to pay money to know how to pay my taxes. That's, that's what gets me. Like, I don't mind paying taxes at all. What I mind is having to pay money to pay my taxes. And it's like, well, you don't have to. You could fill out paper. And it's like, no, I can't. It's Yeah. <laughs> and that's... From what I've read, that is a uniquely American thing, uh, you know, because people, some people, some of the uh, more astute people have, you know, asked the question, you know, if I don't pay enough taxes, the government is going to, you know, reach out to me and say, hey, you didn't pay all the money you owe us. And then, the, so the person will rightly ask, well, if you already knew how much money I owed, why did I have to jump through all these hoops to figure right. that out, to find that number for myself? Why can't you just send me a bill or why can't I just log into an account and see that's how much I owe in taxes and then send you a check or whatever? And the answer is Intuit, TurboTax, H&R Block, all of those companies have been spending lots of money to keep our taxes complicated to keep themselves yeah. relevant uh, yep. not to i mean we're getting into domestic issues here but i mean that is it's really frustrating uh, well, it's like really frustrating well, speaking, speaking of domestic issue that then ties into this chinese thing so it's like this bill before congress to do something like say oh you know we really should teach in our high schools about the japanese internment during world war ii you know it's like World War II, like, oh, we're worried these Japanese uh, Americans are going to end up being spies or some kind of fifth column. So we're going to we're going to put them in concentration camps. So they weren't killed like it wasn't that, but they were still imprisoned without right. trial. They had their freedom and, stripped away. Right. And, and with no that due was process. Wrong. Right. That, that was wrong. And they said, hey, you know, we should we should teach about this. And like, was it 16, 18 congressmen? I guess they were all Republican. Yeah, they're all probably, they're like, no, no, you know, they're, they're going to say America's bad. They're teaching people to hate that America. That makes us uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, and it's just like, look, I mean, you, you got you to gotta know the truth to, to make the world better. And like, it, they're, they're, they're no better. Here, they, they're, These are elected officials, and they're no better than these like college students that are walking out when a girl asked about her, her brother that was missing. And so... <laughs> Just right. Well, there is like this, you know, war on history in the United States right now. And it's, yeah. 
it's disheartening um you know that we're seeing. well i mean according to them it's a war against propaganda and i say what what are you talking about right <laughs> it's like okay uh now getting into ukraine finally um we're going to talk a little bit about the role of nato and the west in general in what's happening because they have also been a factor this interview at uh, jacobin i thought was really interesting to give an you know kind of a rundown of how what putin is doing not justifying it not saying that he was right to invade ukraine and that his actions have been justified but also talking about how this may not have happened if uh, NATO and the West hadn't been sort of uh, instigating things or prodding or put, seeing how far they could push Putin. Um, so, and this is something that I've wanted to learn more about because I have not really understood that much of what has happened with NATO and the conflict between NATO and Putin. Um, can you give a little highlight on that, Brendan? Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed um, and the former Soviet satellites like Poland being the classic example, uh, they were like, okay, well, we want to join the Western Bloc. And NATO came running at them with open arms. And so what had formerly been in the Russian sphere of influence moved to the Western sphere of influence. And there's some kind of like rumor that NATO promised not to expand, and, and that's not true. And also, in our coming episode, we talk about the Yalta Conference and you know, the Potsdam Conference. And in that, the Soviet Union was supposed to let these nations choose for themselves after World War II. But the Soviets didn't really have, weren't really big into having open elections there to decide what they wanted to do. So anyway, the... Russian line is, oh, you know, as soon as as soon as um, the Soviet Union collapsed, the West just, you know, ran up to us with their knives and got as close as they could. Of course, you could also say, well, they just moved it back to where it would have been. <laughs> you know, they moved the, because I'm pretty sure Poland, had they been allowed free elections, would have aligned with the West. Um, and, and the Czech Republic and the Slovakians and many of them, many of those others. Uh, it's a common line they say, but I think they're just using it as justification. You know, like Putin's like, oh, NATO's a threat and they keep getting closer. But NATO wasn't going to accept Ukraine, at least not for another 10 or 20 years. It was not a, a serious threat. It's just an excuse. This is a very... Uh... I guess, basic question, but like, why does Putin see NATO as a threat? Uh, well, they take out tyrants. Um, if he actually does see them as a real threat, it would be because, well, they, they, they're all together to like, well, if one gets attacked, they all get attacked. So they're a threat because if he does want to attack one of the places that's in it, then they will all attack him. Right. And I guess... You know, people accuse NATO of existing just to serve 
Western interests at the expense of whoever happens to get in the way of Western interests. Um, you know, I've seen people invoke what happened with Gaddafi and Libya. Yeah, and yeah, and that that may be an example that's a little like okay, yeah, we can kind of you could kind of see where Putin's coming from, but right. I don't well, think because, I don't think he was in any, any danger. You know, right. Gaddafi was kind of isolated. Um, he was, he was already facing an insurrection and, and it was in NATO saw it in their security interest to pick a side and they picked the side, um, right. you know, bye bye Gaddafi. It's not like NATO just all on their own didn't like, let's go do a regime change. Right. Was, well, what the criticism that I've been seeing, like that I read about NATO's involvement in Libya was, you know, they picked a side. They decided to back uh, Gaddafi's enemies, and they came in, uh, gave enough help to, you know, shake everything up. And as soon as Gaddafi was dead, they just kind of noped out and were like, "All right, see you later." Uh, you know, you guys got this right. We're uh, you've got a maid service, cleaning service to take care of this. Cool. We're gonna go back home to catch. Uh, you know, we got some stuff to watch on TV. I think NATO might still be funding uh, their Coast Guard there because they're try they they try to stop the migrants. They have they, those guys do the dirty work because if the Libyans can catch the migrants, uh, you know, stops the uh, you know like the Italian Navy from having to deal with it or the Italian Coast Guard, and so there's some there's some controversy there because some of the means that the the Libyan authorities might use to stop the migrants may not be what you would call within the realm of human rights. So, <laughs> right. And it's like, uh, oh, it's like, well, we're not violating human rights. We're just giving money to people to protect their own borders and their own coast. And if they do things, so... Yeah, you know, it's right. It's, it's like maintaining, you know, at least one uh, level of detachment from it. You know, one maybe two levels of detachment from it. Complaining going after. about NATO, and um, it's the same thing with you know, like NATO bad because NATO is, you know, it's like an imperialist group. Um, I, I don't know that NATO, I would call NATO imperialist. I mean, they, they, Afghanistan was a NATO operation, but I mean, any, any of these security groups could be used uh, for, for bad, but at its core, it's kind of defensive in nature. Uh, was it? Macron is wanting to move away from NATO and form a more centralized European army. So, for instance, perhaps Europe does want to get involved in this war in Ukraine, but the U.S. doesn't. That would free them up to do that. And Right, um, so like, like having something similar to NATO, but only for the people with a vested geographic interest in what happens. Right. Well, and also the military would be organized under a, a single understandable command structure. And... 
Yeah, which is complicated because you have things like, well, you know, the Netherlands, you know, can they opt out if the European Union all gets together and it's like, we think we should inter intervene in Libya and the Netherlands is like, mm, we don't want to. And it's like, oh, well, you know, their soldiers make up some battalion contingent and it's like, oh, now we got an empty spot. You know, so it's it's kind of difficult. It'll take more European centralization and Euroscepticism is kind of high. So NATO seems to be for for them kind of a good way to not have a unified army. And once you build a unified army, you want to use a unified army. You know, right. so if, if if you so if they don't build it, then they don't have to worry about it itching to invade or do anything. And NATO really it it, it is reactive. It, it it's not out there to looking to looking for places to invade. Right. It's it is a reactive organization. Right. And it's something that I've wondered from my, you know, poorly informed, naive thinking when I hear about, you know, the conflict between NATO, the West and Russia that predates Putin, you know, like why aren't they working together? It, you know, once Russia was not communist anymore, like I understand, not that I agree with it, but I understood that the United States, their justification before was well they're communist and we don't we don't work with communists um i mean it was bullshit but it there was a reason there but then once they're not communist anymore and reagan was pushing to you know open up relations with the west um why isn't that a thing now does that make sense well i think russia was going to be too big for for nato and they also saw them as, uh, well, when you have a, like a state institution, any institution, if it's destroyed and it's been around a while, it's a strong institution, it will try to recreate itself. Um, you know, it's just like uh, any sort of like, you know, if, uh, you know <laughs> Poland, it was, it was eliminated, but it recreated itself. And, you know, it was like it had been partitioned, but it came back. It was an institution. And the Russia as kind of this sort of, it had years under the czar of expansion, expansion, expansion. That was just kind of this top down organization was institutionalized. And with the Soviet Union, it was more dispersed. Putin is, you know, he called the Soviet Union the, like the affirmative action empire or something like, why did the Georgians get a country? Why did the Kazakhs get a country? We shouldn't have that. It should, it should be top down. And he's kind of going back to that czarist mentality. By, Very absolute strong state power. Right. So yeah, top down, centralized. Um, I don't think he's going to literally bring back the czar, which I think would be brilliant for marketing purposes. <laughs> um, you know, like the czarist palaces. Yeah, hey, the Brit royals, they know how to sell, sell tea and coffee mugs and get people to go visit the Buckingham Palace. The Russians could totally do that. Bring back the Romanovs. And just, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, all maybe they have not to the do Romanovs, is... considering <laughs> what, where are they? Where, what happened to them? There, there's some. There are some. Yeah, there, there's still there would still be a, an heir that could be located. <laughs> so it's like, but all right, just as sort back. of like a figurehead, the way the, the Queen of England is now. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, but it's a tourist. They're not going to be building any railways or anything. Yeah, yeah, just purely, purely tourist attraction. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, don't even give them, don't even give them um, head of state or anything. Just oh, they are the unofficial ambassador of Russia. You know, kind of like the unofficial like um, ambassador for like Fender guitars or something <laughs> for Russia. But um, anyway, he he Putin, you know, like Russia, just something about that as an institution, their government institution, it just goes back. And I don't know, I might be giving the West, Western leaders too much credit for being a little leery of bringing Russia in. But one, I mean, Yeltsin's administration was just a giant, horrible farce of corruption and incompetence. You, they, they couldn't bring them into NATO. How could they? <laughs> you know, like right. That because just, that, when the when the when the Soviet Union fell, you had you know the state owned like all of the natural resources and all of the major uh, pr producers and companies, and then the Soviet Union falls, and all of the the people who did have money at the time looted all of that stuff and so all of those state-owned natural resources like the oil and the media ended up in the hands of gangsters and yeah i could see that being a problem um a, a, right. a cynic might argue that that's the same th way that things are in every other country but it was a little more obvious, you know, we because it was mostly gangsters without any administrative training. So, right, maybe yeah. if the gangsters had taken a few political science classes beforehand, you know, they could. Well, yeah, the yeah the state continued to be a way for people to enrich themselves, and just a slightly different group, but. And with a different kind of political philosophy and less concern, like getting rid of all the, the premise of equality. Because the communists, I mean, they, they had to at least pretend they cared. I mean, they, and there were things about that regime that arguably they did to, you know, justify or legitimize themselves. Like, you know, I'll talk to people that lived here and a lot of them remember the the Soviet Union moderately fondly. They they don't want it back, but it seems like oh well, you know I got really sick as a kid and uh, I was flown to Moscow, and like in the 80s or something. It's like what you know like yeah. some kind of middle class person and everybody got a vacation and it was like you had they told you where to go like you went to the Caspian Sea. You had like a rush. <laughs> But it's like every year you were entitled to a vacation that's covered. And so you went on to your group vacation. Right. And you got the hotel booked for you. And so. And, you My know, impression that I had gotten is that while things may not have been that great and there wasn't a lot of room necessarily for mobility, there the bottom was not nearly as low as it is now. Right, and, and that's yeah the the general, yeah the the general thing. The bottom wasn't as low. People knew at the end of the day they were at least going to eat. Um, they could sleep somewhere warm, and um, yeah, the the hospitals would try to treat them if they were sick. 
Right. You know, they might not have the ability, but they would try. Uh, just depending. And, right. um, but yeah, the the Russian regime. You know, it's uh, instead of doing promising things like that, it's promising. Oh, you know, well, if you work hard, maybe you can get wealthy. Um, and so fo- and instead of focusing on on um, equal, uh, you know, any sort of equality, it's a little bit more economic freedom and then religious and cultural history. You know, the whole oh, we're gonna, you know, like we're let's go back to our, our the pride in our history and you know we used to be this major world power. Or, I mean, they still are a major world power, but. You know, that's that's more of the the element with United Russia, and, right? And yeah. nostalgia is a, a huge and terrible political force. Yeah. Um, well, they've even started breaking out the old um, Stalin statues. So, like the, the the Russians got rid of a lot of that. Like, eh, we don't really we don't really want that out. You know, that was a bad time. Um, and, you know, there's the Communist Party stayed around and they were like, oh, how dare you, you know, hide Stalin. He was the Iron Man who saved us from the Nazis. Uh, and now they're kind of, and it's United Russia that's bringing them back out and saying like, oh, yeah, it's okay. You know, strong men are, strong leaders are good. We, look, look, <laughs> look how strong we can be. Right. So, I mean, I, the short, like, I don't... The short answer, like NATO couldn't accept Russia because it was big and competent and like it just wasn't, they couldn't manage that military, this giant military that they had weapons disappearing and stuff and they had to get their house in order. And then like Latvia, Lithuania, these smaller nations, even if their house wasn't in order, they could be put in line if things got out of hand. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking about the actual conflict, uh, we have this story here. Russia facing outright defeat and sudden collapse in Ukraine, author says. Uh, Author and political scientist Francis Fukuyama said the Russian military is now facing the possibility of outright defeat in Ukraine. And he's warning Russian president. Vladimir Putin, that the end could be swift for both his military and his more than two decade rule. So I don't know, is this more, you know, like uh, wishful thinking that we keep seeing um, in the media? You know, Uh, constant claims that Russia is getting its ass handed to it. They're going to be defeated any day now. Putin's going to be overthrown any day now. Um, I kind of think so. Yeah, um, I, I, if they cannot keep their troops supplied, then, then yeah, there, there could be a chance. Because we saw that his, historically, you know, Russian soldiers. Um, and it all also depend on how well Putin keeps up with the propaganda. So Russian soldiers will face horrible depredation if they believe in their cause. Um, if they don't believe in their cause, just like they, you know, they'll rebel. That's World War One. They stopped believing in the cause. They rebelled. World War Two. They believed in the cause, and there was no stopping them. Like right. they would face all kind of starvation, weather, gunfire, and so he could face outright defeat if 
he if he loses um, that propaganda war amongst the the soldiers, and it seemed he did not they did not start well. That the soldiers themselves that have surrendered have been kind of like, we don't know why we're here. We didn't think we were right. coming here, and but I imagine the they're starting to get a little bit more education as to why they're there. Right. And it's it's much harder these days to keep information from people and you know especially once the soldiers get to ukraine and they're not in russia anymore uh, and they can see for themselves um yeah but hopefully that's what's happening hopefully that's what will happen hopefully they'll get uh, you know the soldiers will get to see arnold schwarzenegger's video that he put out on twitter <laughs> yeah um I actually liked that. I'm a fan of Arnold. Uh, I, I have, I used when I was a little kid. I would go see his movies in the theater back in the '80s when they would let, you know, a little kid into an R-rated movie because nobody gave a shit. Right. Um. <laughs> um yeah. Uh, I, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the, but at the end of the day, I, the war I think is only going to end uh, when the Russian people turn against it and it, it's going to be hard they're going to have to face a lot of depredation themselves which is like you know, sanctions might make that happen uh and um they've got to stop believing that what what's happening is good and that probably means that a hundred thousand russian soldiers have to well there'll have to be major casualties before the Russian people really start to notice, like, hold it. Something's really going on here. Right. And the government's not, like, the government's claiming they've had 500 casualties. Um, It's a military operation, and it's going very well. And, I mean, they're making advances. I mean, they, they, they are slowly moving forward, but... There's no guarantee that they're going to win. Um, right, I, because the Ukrainian people are not rolling over. Um, and yeah. so there's that issue, too, of even if they were able to you know, seize the entire country, they're going to have to deal with insurgency. Um, I don't, you know, maybe <laughs> the whole time that they're there. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know, at that, like... They're using the Aleppo strategy, just bomb bomb them into breaking their morale. And okay, well, then after they're occupying it, and they're facing yeah guerrilla insurgency, and you uh, yeah, like the U.S. is sending in still Stinger missiles and stuff. You know, we're dropping it to the woods. <sighs> How what are they going to do? Bomb bomb their own cities they're occupying? Right. Um. um but. Uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, it, it could happen that the Ukrainian people do finally, you know, capitulate. Have too many, yeah, have too many of their own people die, and like, you know, I'm I'm done. My, you know, wife got killed, my kid got killed. You know, is it right. worth it? Maybe if I can... everyone who is willing to fight is killed, then you're just left with the people who are tired and you know, not willing to fight anymore. Yeah. But the, they've had a, a couple of generals die, Russian generals. I think that it's up to four. 
And they said they're going to the front because it was going so badly that they're going to the front. And I, I guess to their credit, it, it seems to be working because they have been making advances recently and have kind of solidified their their lines. Uh, but, you know, I, I really don't know how many Russian generals there are or if there is like a surplus of them, but right. it's kind of interesting. That, and then uh, I've heard that, you know, Putin has fired some of them also. Um, so I don't, yeah, it's how many generals do they have? Uh, are people, maybe there's going to be a lot of room for, uh, uh, be a lot of room for promotions. Promotions. That's the word I was thinking. There's <laughs> a lot of room for promotion. Yeah. So um, it could be good for all the people in, you know, on the lower ranks. Yeah. But with that in mind, we were talking about like um, this war uh, that is very kind of unique. We've we've been having mercenaries for a while, but this war is like being crowdsourced. There's like and the aid. So you you go back to political science. You the government is essentially exchanging private war for public war. You know, like I've got my my family and my farmland and my cows and, you know, the neighbors come and steal my cows before a government. I had to go attack that person to get my cows back. And I had to have relationships with my family or, or tribe to go do it. You know, I think of like the wild West, you know, and then, you know, but you had to be kind of a mean person known for, for being aggressive. Otherwise people will steal your stuff. And so, like, ah, uh, you know, this whole private war thing isn't necessarily so nice. You end up with vigilantism, accidents happen. Let's have a sheriff, you know, or let's have, you know, public war. Um, but we are at this odd point where this war is being crowdsourced. So right. I, I saw this article by like uh, Gray Dynamics, and um, you go through them, uh, you know, this one article here. It's got something about their special operation forces. I think these these guys are analysts, and they, they have some interesting articles. And if you look down in here, you'll see like a video of, I think it's a fellow that volunteered to join the Ukrainian forces, but it goes over all like the weapons they have. And the, the foreign soldiers are, are being advised to bring their own stuff. And this article also has where you can donate to the Red Cross or donate to the government directly. And so it's, uh, you know, like the whole idea, you know, kind of like the joke about, well, I don't want to pay, you know, so if you like paying taxes, well, why don't you, you know, pay extra to the government? And like, well, here it is. Yeah. So, uh, but also hackers. You have all these like, these like hackers going in and, and doing stuff on their own. And this could create a problem because what if a private citizen does like a major hack and then it create the government gets in trouble for it, you know? Like... Right, because when you have people acting outside of the government, it might undermine um, diplomatic solutions potentially. Yeah. But at this point, you know, how likely does a diplomatic solution seem to be? Right, yeah. What also because of diplomacy, I think we're seeing this happen. Like the U.S. 
doesn't want to send troops, you know, or NATO doesn't want to send troops because the war might escalate. And so it's up to private individuals who believe that this is the right thing for them to go. And so <laughs> it's like we don't even have, we, we no longer have private war or public war. We have like the worst of both worlds. It's starting to turn <laughs> into like Royal Rumble, where it's like every five minutes you have a new participant running down the aisle to jump in the ring. Wow. I saw a story about an American sniper, uh, retired military. I think he was retired military. I would assume he's not in the military anymore, but he was a sniper uh, in the Middle East, and he, he's he gone there to fight for Ukraine. And he was saying that the Russian soldiers are nowhere near as good as the Taliban. And oh. that the, the Taliban that he fought were way better at fighting than the Russians, which I guess would make a, a sort of sense because, you know, the Taliban's got a lot of experience in fighting and the Russian military, um, I guess a lot, I would assume a lot of them haven't been active, you know, and plus if he's pulling a, a, a large portion of the Russian military to send in, he's probably pulling in a lot more fresh faced people. Whereas, does the Taliban even have fresh-faced people? I mean, at least, you know, when they were fighting. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, you'd have to. you got to have new people coming in. But, at the you know, like, it seems like if you were fighting in the Taliban when you when the United States was still there, you would lose that greenness really fast. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that that's kind of what will likely happen there, too. Uh, you know, the as well, foreign volunteers and the conscripts, they'll, they'll, they'll get tough pretty quickly. You send that one dude from America who went to Afghanistan with his sword. I, I, they should send him <laughs> over there. I don't know what side he'd fight for, though. But whatever, just send him anyway. <laughs> um, well, it's a big part of entertainment. Yeah, we ought to get something out of this, I guess. I'm kidding. That's too much. That's too far. I've gone too far. Um, oh, there's another sign that Russia might know they're in trouble. It's these um, the the missiles that they're shooting. They have a decoy that the West didn't at least officially know about. Right. So, and, that and now we're finding those. It's been an intelligence bonanza, from what I've read. Right. That the, yeah. you, they're figuring out how that Russian missile missile defense uh, is working. Yeah, um, so they that was kind of like an ace in the hole. That's something you save for, you know, like when you're in trouble. I don't know, maybe they have a couple of aces and that was one of them. But <laughs> they're like, ah, oh, we're going to have this decoy so they discover it. And then, but... Yeah, but then... That, maybe not. That maybe they that, did just... Like, are they playing 4D chess or are they just in trouble? Yeah, um, uh, my guess would be in trouble. Yeah, they're <laughs> using the hypersonic missiles too. Um, I'm spending hoping. so much money, like each one of those, so much money to like hit random, sometimes like ra seemingly random targets or civilian targets. I mean, the one in, in Lviv, which, you know, is like, oh, they're getting close to Ukraine. It's like, that was a military, well, one of them at least was a military target. But it's like, ugh. 
Uh, yeah, there's actually so. this headline from today. Um, Russians bomb Maripol school sheltering 400 residents. Pope denounces repugnant war. Um, so, oh, so well, yeah, apparently they're, they're, you know, they were uh, bombing uh, people hiding out in a school. And, you know, these, of course, would be civilians. Uh, unless you ask, you know, Putin, I'm sure that he would say that they were all terrorists or, you know, Ukrainian fighters. Well, there's a, the theater that was bombed and it had uh, like written out over it, like DTA, which is like uh, DTA, it's like children. Um, but it was bombed and some of the people in the basement survived, but a lot of people were killed. And it's like, uh, that, that had to have been on purpose. And it's like, oh, well, they were, they were hiding weapons there, Lusitania. Like, oh, I don't think so. Right. You always have to, uh, you know, as soon as you're accused of killing uh, non-combatants, you, you know, of course say, yeah. no, they were combatants. I mean, that's well, <laughs> the easiest yeah. way to, to counter that, I guess. Oh, it's like the difference in terrorism and war crimes is kind of who does it. Uh, terrorism right. or individual non-state actors and war crimes, it's a state actor. And it's a state actor targeting civilians. Those, those, they're war crimes. And I guess you can't have war crimes if you don't declare war. But I don't think it works that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you can't lose the war if you don't declare the war. <laughs> you just end your military operation. <laughs> right. But Which... I guess that goes to why... What I'm talking about, the new privatization of war is like we don't even declare war because it's so inconvenient, like in in our government sense. And it's like, well, why doesn't Ukraine declare war? You know, I mean, they're invaded. They're obviously at war. But by declaring war, then Russia could say, oh, look, we're being attacked. And so the CSTO needs to come in. And so in Kazakhstan and Armenia and, you know, like, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And I guess that that brings up a point that I hadn't really thought about before. But, you know, well, I had wondered what if Ukraine goes on the offensive and I guess it wouldn't be in their interest to, you know, attack Russia on Russian soil uh, because then that would trigger the involvement of other countries that would be kind of backed into a corner. Yeah. Which is, which is kind of a whole lot of messed up because then they're, you know, so Ukraine is forced to fight with their arm tied behind their back. But I, I suspect that um, when the, what was it? Reaper drones get there. uh, They'll start, they'll start bombing targets in Belarus and Russia. Um, I don't think they're going to bomb a bunch of civilian targets, but, I bet they'll hit some Military. some of those missile launchers. Yeah, well, especially yeah. those missile launchers. Like, come on, you're gonna put missile launch Iskander missile launchers on your territory, shoot them into Ukraine, and then if if it gets blown up, be like, oh, you invaded us. Like, right. come well, on. Putin's not gonna like not do something because he doesn't think it's fair. That's not, <laughs> yeah. that's not like the KGB. Motto. I guess it's really <laughs> yeah, not anybody's motto, motto except yeah. for the Democrats, and we see where that's gotten us. Anyway, <laughs> right. 
Um, so what, a, I guess maybe we can wrap up by talking a little bit about the propaganda that, you know, has been spreading because that continues to shift and grow and change shape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of it's uh, similar. I mean, I imagine you're going to still see like, um, oh, this war was started on purpose so that um, governments can take over the economy to m make everything green. This is, you know, the West started this so they could have the Green New Deal and, and they're going to they're turn it into a socialist state controlling all industries. Um, the government doesn't care about you. They're spending millions on Ukraine and, you know, you're suffering, but right. you know, something happens they, there. And so Biden's sending billions of dollars to Ukraine, but he won't cancel my student debt. That's a right. I see on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, so. I agree. You know, I think Biden should cancel student debt. I've, I've got a vested interest in, uh, in that happening. But even yeah. if I didn't yeah. owe the you yeah. know, money, I would still think it's a good idea, but that doesn't seem to be, I mean, in my mind, it doesn't really connect directly to sending aid to a country being invaded. Yeah, well, that's like that whole thing about, you know, why should we send aid to so-and-so when we have veterans that don't get health care? And it's like, why are we not giving veterans health care? We should be doing that. This is independent of that. Right. Like, these things do not have to be connected. Like, right, and it, it kind uh, of feels like those kind of arguments are just meant to sort of muddy the waters. They're not really meant to make a good point about anything. They're just sort of like stirring the pot. Yeah, and they're highly effective. And so there's, oh, it's so corrupt. Why do we want to help? And um, and then I, the thing like you were talking about NATO. Oh, this is all NATO's fault. If NATO hadn't expanded, this wouldn't have happened. And that's they're actually buying into the Russian line. It's, that's what they keep repeating over and over again. Like we just care about our security. We just care about our security. And it's like. So for your security, you invaded another country and now have got yourself isolated. Like, come on, this is not about your security. <laughs> yeah, know, it's this... it's really strange. Uh, and I guess a testament to Putin's, you know, mastery of propaganda that here we've got people from the political left and the political right repeating his lines. Um you know, he's got the the conservative right is really getting behind him, you know, and that makes a sort of sense. But then you also have, uh, you know, the, the, the extreme left here where they, they hate America. Well, I don't mean to, in that like cheesy way, but, you know, uh, American imperialism and all of the bad things that the American government has our, done. Which our is motives are wrong. always wrong. <laughs> right, but, you know, they... You know, like, you can well, have two things that are true at the same time. Like, yes, the, the, the U.S. has acted uh, imperially. Right, and maybe it's, maybe it's uh, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a good idea to question the American government's motives and their decision-making process. That's totally fair. Yeah. You don't, it's not a good idea to just assume that the administration is acting out of, you know, some morally superior stance. At the same time, just like blanket 
writing all of it off seems really naive to me um, and overly simplistic. Yeah. There is one thing I would like to mention uh, before we end. That was uh, I went down the rabbit hole studying these Donbass separatists, and uh, they have their own Nazi group, uh, the Sparta Spartan Battalion or something. But um, they were kind of um, organic. So when you had the Maiden Re Revolt or Maiden Square, Farm and... Fresh Nazis. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. What Nazis? Farm fresh. You said they're or farm fresh. organic, so. Oh, yeah. Okay. Organic, farm fresh. Yeah. Um, well, like the thought that the rebellion in Donbass is completely made up by Russia, that the Russia, that nobody there wanted to be part of Russia. And it's like, mm, that's not exactly true. There, there was an organic movement of, of people in the East that were like, we don't like what's happening in Kiev. We don't like this new like a leftist lean or, or nationalism. I mean, it, Ukraine is nationalist in the sense that they're like, we want to be a nation. We see ourselves as Ukrainian. We want to be a nation, uh, which with our own political up, agency, right? With our own, that's, I mean, that's what nationalism itself is. Nationalism alone isn't a bad thing. Like it's just saying, I believe my people have a political future. And my people can be defined geographically, like the United States of America. If we were geographic, we're like, yeah, English, Irish, German, like we, we want to be our own thing away from the crown. We want to be the United States of America. And okay. And so this whole thing about Ukraine not being a real country or only a country for the past 30 years, one, is just completely false. But two, even if it were true, like as an American, we believe in the concept of a people having a political future or deciding their own political future. Ukraine wants a political future. So there is that nationalism. That type of nationalism definitely exists. And the some of the, in the East were like, mm, no, we really still feel more of an affinity toward Russia, and we think that this is coming from a sort of us versus them mentality, don't like it. Um, all right, fair enough. And so there was a movement of people to kind of like, all right, let's, let's break away from, from these guys. If they're going to be nationalistic, we're going to be nationalistic and make our own thing. Uh, but a lot of them were just kind of like crime bosses, essentially. Or, and But they were effective at at least defending that territory that they did take. And the Russians helped them. But then I found out that a lot of the leadership was assassinated. And the Russians said the Ukrainian Secret Service did it. And the Ukrainians like, we didn't do it. <laughs> they did it. The FSB did it because they couldn't control these guys. So they were like, it was very Machiavellian. It was these, you know, Donbass leaders created their little um, authoritarian-esque. Uh, some of them were fascist, you know, <laughs> uh, sub-state or state, or there were two of them, Donbass and Lugask. Um, but once they were no longer convenient or couldn't be controlled, or it became pretty obvious how they were just kind of like leading criminal gangs, 
then the Kremlin took them out. And Chris Abbey will never know. I mean, right. it's, like, it's like, you did it. No, you did it. But knowing how Machiavelli, I think if the Ukrainians did it, they would have owned up to it. Yeah, we did it. We'll do it again. Right. You know, like, why would they like, no, we didn't kill that guy that's rebelling against us and causing trouble and killing our soldiers. No, no, it wasn't us. Like, why would they deny it? Right. Like, um, and that's something else I've been wondering about, you know, one of Putin's claims has been that Russian speaking people, ethnically Russian people in those regions were being, uh, mistreated and oppressed and, uh, killed off. And Hitler said that about the Sudeten Germans and stuff, or, you know, or he said that in Poland, the Poles are, you know, harming, hurting, hurting the, the Germans and. We got to do something, and um, are they being persecuted at least? But there's there's no evidence of that. The the closest you have is like in the war, those mortars going back and forth, and civilians died. Um, but there's no definite thing, and that, Russian is still one of, is still like one of the official languages, and people can like be educated in it. So. Right. Outside of what Putin's story has been, what I've been seeing, you know, and of course I'm detached from it. I'm not there and I've never been there. But from what I keep hearing, you know, the people in Ukraine have a lot of strong social ties to Russia where people, you know, like I've got family in Russia. You know, my aunts and uncles live in Russia. I have a ton of cousins in Russia. So that doesn't seem to track with, you know, knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, the thing is too, it's probably only about 20% of the country a few years ago that really did was like, yes, let's align with the West. Most of them were kind of like, you know, we got our own problems trying to end corruption and yeah, I got family in Russia and, um, but it's just like the Ukrainian church that, that's been sort of the, there's now a Ukrainian Orthodox church. So that's new. They used to all be Russian Orthodox and now they split up. And so, you know, the Russian Orthodox is even separate from all the other Orthodox now because they're all mad about it. But it's like all this has happened under Putin and like how he's, and the that mixture of the Moscow Ukrainian, like the Russian Ukrainian or Russian Orthodox Church, and um, United Russia, or you know, in the Russian state, how they've kind of partnered up. That's what's created the split, and it's ironic because they're like, we want to get along. We don't really want to be separate, but you're kind of making it. So we have to choose between identities and we don't necessarily want to, but if you're going to make us, then we prefer to be Ukrainian. Right. (laughs) If you're going to make us, we're not going to choose what you want us to choose. Yeah. And And a lot of, yeah, a lot of the Russian speakers are like, no, I'm Ukrainian. Yes, I speak Russian, but I'm Ukrainian. It's the national, you know, identity. Yeah. Well, did, uh, did we cover everything that you were thinking of? 
Uh, oh, da, da, I, I guess there's one last thing. Uh, China. I was watching. Um, I was practicing my French, watching Chinese state media in French. It's actually quite good because um, their accents, excellent, and um, the subtitles are are always great. So if you're learning French, I strongly suggest a Chinese state television. But um, there, I, I got to find out from that their party line on uh, U.S. sending aid. They were like, ah, the U.S. is causing trouble by, well, they, they didn't say that. They were much more diplomatic. It was um, the U.S. should only be sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Sending weapons only, you know, only creates problems. So I hope that they follow that advice themselves, that only, only send humanitarian aid. So I really hope China just sends, if they send, even if they send a whole bunch of MREs to Russian troops, and, but that's all they send, I'll be like, okay, that's, that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's, you're being consistent. Yeah. Uh, but there's one uh, think tank that was like, oh, we're betting on the wrong horse if we bet on Putin. This is China's financial interest. They're with, they're, they're with the West. And if we back Putin, we're, we're just, it's, it's going to end up bad because, you know, we're going to make Ukraine angry and we like Ukraine too. So uh, don't bet the wrong, on the wrong horse. Right. Especially yeah, the horse that's probably, <laughs> especially the horse is probably terminally ill and going to die soon. Or, I mean, that's a rumor, but. Right. Uh, yeah. There, here's this article you mentioned. Uh, Chinese scholars are warning of the cost of pro-Russian neutrality. Uh, and then from the article, since Russia invaded Ukraine last month, China has insisted on remaining neutral, yet that balancing act, which seems premised on Beijing's hope of avoiding repercussions while maximizing the political and economic benefits it enjoys from continued relations with Russia, Europe, and the U.S., appears increasingly precarious. So yeah, China's been trying to ride the line and sort of see, you know, like see how things play out before they jump in and get too involved. So that, you know, if Russia does end up coming out on top, they're still they still have a good relationship with Russia, but also Russia's getting hammered with sanctions which opens up the door for Chinese investment. And Chinese investment always comes with a lot of strings attached, which, I mean, to be fair, like U.S. investment always comes with lots of strings attached as well. So China's not uniquely terrible in that uh, in that particular instance. Uh, people that loan money usually want to get paid back. That's Right. Well, I'm speaking aside from getting paid back, you know, the other things of like you, if you want this money, you're going to have to make some changes to how your government works or, you know, you're going to have to enact these certain restrictions, things like that. So, yeah, there's still, I think it's getting a little harder as time passes for China. They're, I'm assuming that at some point they're going to have to kind of pick a side. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah. As long as they're sending food, yeah, humanitarian aid. That's the nice thing to do. They can send humanitarian aid. And maybe a few bombs? Nope, 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 nope. Oh, nope. 
Well, what if there's just a few uh, rocket launchers under the food? And they still get the food. No, no no Lusitania shipments, no. Okay. What about helmets, body armor, and medical equipment, and a few crates of rifles? Mm, Medical equipment and food. Medical equipment and food. And rifles, right? Nope, nope, no rifles. But... (laughs) I, I don't think prosthetic, I, prosthetic, prosthetic limbs are okay. I don't think I understand. Okay, prosthetic limbs with flamethrowers attached. No, 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 no flamethrowers. No, no. Some, I saw a story recently. Somebody pointed out that, uh, you know, due to international law, uh, governments, militaries are prohibited from using flamethrowers but at least in the united states private citizens can still have flamethrowers and with private war right. as i'm talking about the private war it's like all right well i'm a merc right I'm, if I'm a bunch of uh, texans with you know their own uh i don't know black and decker brand uh, uh flamethrowers go to Ukraine and start fighting for Ukrainians and they're burning Russian soldiers alive with their privately owned flamethrowers. Is that going to be a war crime or is that just a regular Uh, crime? Well, if they're non-state actors, uh, it would still, I guess it would be considered terrorism. (laughs) But if you're a non-state actor acting on behalf, if they got anything from the government, then they would be engaging in state-sponsored terrorism. If they like, you know, even if somebody gave them a cook, you know, so the government gave them a cookie or something, and it's like, right. oh, well, that's state-sponsored terrorism. Then um, I saw a picture uh, out of the Ukrainosphere. These soldiers are, you know, uploading pictures, and one of them was like a Texan. A Texan looking at it would just like, ah. it's a pickup truck. And there's a tarp over what's in the back, and you at least see two feet sticking out from under the tarp with boots. So there's at least one dead person under there. It looks like more. And in front is a guy in, like, camo that looks like he bought from Cabela's. And he's got his... But he does have, like, a a machine gun. Not an AK-47, but, you know, I honestly don't know what type but it had a, like a longer round than I think even it was longer than the AK round. <laughs> but he's like, he went hunting. It's like, Oh, it's brutal. All right. Well, I feel like that maybe covers it. We've been going yeah, for yeah, yeah. close to two hours now, which. Oh, we'll have a big old episode. Follow us on social media, uh, you know, Twitter, at CIA Files Podcast, same at Instagram, facebook.com slash CIA Files. Um, you can go to CIAfiles.threadless.com. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> How can CIA. we never like, <laughs> consistently remember? Um, and uh, Yes, CIAfiles.threadless.com. Yes. And uh, buymeacoffee.com slash CIA Files. Uh, go get those unique t-shirts and coffee mugs 
this week I will be putting up the corrected versions. So you're gonna this is legacy. The legacy ones are up now. Yeah. And <laughs> the ones that the ones that say podcast are legacy and they will be taken down sometime this week. And that's it. And if you if you're no listening chance. to this, you know, via the the old way, uh, go ahead and uh, maybe check us out on the YouTube CIA files, true stories of U.S. intelligence, and subscribe to us there. We need to get, we need to hit a certain number of subscribers there to unlock, you know, certain abilities to do things. And um, yeah, about the same time that this comes out, we'll also have finally. Um, our episode on Guy Burgess. Uh, it's taken me, I've been a bottleneck on that, getting that finished. Um, but it's done now. So, Yay. Uh, yeah. And uh, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>